Aquinas in 1996 and was ordained a priest to the Diocese of Arlington the same year. Father Scalia has published articles in various periodicals, including This Rock, First Things, and Human Life Review, and is the founder, editor, and published of the Fenwick Review. He was also just recently uh, appointed pastor of St. John the Beloved in McLean, Virginia. And it is my honor to welcome um, one of the members of the advisory board of the Institute of Catholic Culture, Father Scalia. as 
certain situations, the whole culture of death is characterized by this. Not that life is bad, but that life is not always good. Of course, the culture of life is characterized by the opposite attitude, the unshakable truth that life is always good, never convenient, never timely, never economical, but always good. And closely connected to the abortion debate, of course, is the whole sphere of human sexuality. And debates in that area turn on whether or not there is something objectively true about this particular human act, or whether it all depends on the individuals and the situation and so on. It hinges on whether sexuality has a meaning independent of us, or whether we get to do with it what we will. If there's truth to human sexuality, then we must observe it. If there is no truth to it, well, then anything goes. That is our current situation. To try to understand how we got here and the deeper roots of the problem, I want to back up and give a, a brief uh, historical survey, or a broader historical view, rather, of the problem. It's tempting to see this problem and its roots uh, as fairly recent. It's tempting to think, to look back at the 50s and see that well, everything was, seemed to be in order then. Uh, things must have, been, must have gone wrong in the 60s with the arrival of, of free love, of drugs, and really, really bad clothes. <laughs> and there is something terrible about that, but Woodstock in the summer of love merely brought relativism to the fore, and they popularized it. Popularized it. And uh, the 60s basically began the advance of relativism as the dominant mindsets of the culture. But the roots of relativism go much, much deeper. To find them, we have to look back to uh, Enlightenment philosophy, or rather, the dissolution of philosophy during the Enlightenment, uh, and even as far back as William of Ockham in the 14th century. And actually, I'm going to push it back even further in a little bit. So the good news is, things are really bad. <laughs> the bad news is, they're worse than we think. Before we discuss moral relativism, we must first consider philosophical and theological relativism. And this approach simply respects the principle that action follows nature, that doing follows being. A mistake about the nature of things, or about being, precedes a mistake about action and doing. And so the denial of nature, or of being, results in the denial of any right or wrong about action and doing. So the crisis in moral truth that we're in the midst of arises from a crisis about truth in general, about philosophical and theological truth. We are confused about how to live because we're confused about who we are and what we are. So turning first to the philosophical problem, in Tides Ratio, John Paul II identifies a twofold problem in modern philosophy. He writes, abandoning the investigation of being, modern philosophical research has concentrated instead upon human knowing. 
rather than make use of the human capacity to know truth, modern philosophy has preferred to accentuate the ways in which this capacity is limited and conditioned. So first, philosophy has abandoned metaphysics, the investigation of being. And that move basically separates us from any objective truth. Because metaphysics concerns being itself. And to turn away from it means to turn away from what is outside of us and independent of us. It is a turning inward and making ourselves the focus. Metaphysics used to be the high point of philosophy. All other philo philosophical disciplines supported metaphysics. Epistemology wasn't the most important. Ethics wasn't the most important. Logic wasn't the most important. It was metaphysics, the study of what is. And by abandoning that, we have separated ourselves from objective truth. By turning away from that philosophy, uh, philosophy then turned in on itself. And second, as Jean-Paul II identified, the second mistake of modern philosophy is about knowledge, the ability to know. There is a despair in modern thinking about the ability of man to know the truth. So John Paul writes, modern philosophy has preferred to accentuate the ways in which this capacity to know is limited and conditioned. And then he goes on, we see among the men and women of our time, and not just in some philosophers, attitudes of widespread distrust of the human being's great capacity for knowledge. So next time somebody tells you that the Catholic Church is against human learning and knowledge and everything like that, well, just remind them that it, it, it was the Holy Father that had to defend the ability of the human mind to know what is true. This skepticism, this, this insecurity, this, this doubt about our, the human ability to know is the inevitable result of turning away from metaphysics, the study of what is. Our minds are made to know the truth. If we do not take seriously that truth for which we were created, the truth that is distinct and outside of us, if we don't take that seriously, then we will quickly despair of our capacity to know because we're not putting it into use. We're not using it for its proper object. Once we have turned away from the proper object of our minds, our minds suddenly make no sense. It's like refusing to walk and then trying to give some explanation for the existence of your feet. <laughs> Once you've given up that, that, that ability to walk, well, what are these things? They're kind of funny looking. And well, I get rid of them. Now, a more lighthearted diagnosis of the same philosophical problem comes from Uncle Gilbert. Chesterton. <laughs> He writes in Orthodoxy, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that does assert the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he, not, he ought not to assert, namely himself. The part he doubts is exactly that 
is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. The new skeptic is so humble that he doubts if he can ever learn. There's a real humility typical of our time, but it so happens that it's practically a more poisonous humility than the wildest prostrations of the ascetic. The old humility made a man doubtful about his efforts, which might, which might make him work harder. But the new humility makes a man doubtful about his aims, which makes him stop working altogether. We are on the road to producing a race of man too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. <laughs> we saw this false modesty or this mistaken modesty at play last year in the presidential campaign when the now current occupant of the White House was asked when life begins. And he punted, saying, well, it's beyond his pay scale. Which is ridiculous, of course, because everyone from the least educated to the most well-educated has some thought, some conviction about when life begins. So it's completely disingenuous to say, well, gosh, I don't, I don't know. Of course, there's more at play in this response. But it does nicely exemplify the relativist's mindset in several ways. And the most immediately, immediate is this, this false modesty or this mistaken modesty about the mind's capacity to know. Next, theological relativism. And it should be easy to see how philosophical relativism, really the denial of objective truth and the doubt of whether or not we can know it, leads to theological relativism. If there's no truth out there, or worse still, if we have no capacity to know it, then creeds and dogmas make no sense whatsoever. Given this view of man's intellectual capacity, religion becomes just a matter of authority, you believe, simply because a person of authority tells you, or it becomes a matter of just feelings, you believe, because you had a warm feeling when you believed it. And that's it. But reason is not at play at all. Religion certainly can't be a matter of truth. Theological relativism is very familiar to us. It comes to us in the broader culture as indifferentism. The attitude that says all religions are really the same. It, it doesn't matter. They're, they all basically are the same thing. They just sort of look different. And to which Chesterton, of course, replies, it's just the opposite. All religions kind of look the same on the outside, but on the inside, what they teach in their dogmas, they are radically different. Indifferentism is the view of religion as useful only for morals and good order. It sees religion not as something that touches on dogmatic truth, but it's still important because it keeps people well-behaved. And so what we have then is a morality that's completely disconnected from the truth. And what happens when a certain community no longer agrees on a set morality? What will you appeal to having separated it from the truth? Or having separated religion from the truth, what will happen when technology makes old taboos seem outdated. Once religion is separated from the truth, moral codes become just opinions or just a matter of taste. Within the church, 
theological relativism emerges as the anti-dogmatic attitude. In this regard, I want to call attention to the greatest prophet of this problem, John Henry Cardinal Newman. And I do so not only because he's the greatest prophet of this problem, but also because he's to be beatified uh, next year. And when he is beatified, or eventually canonized, I guess, I wouldn't be surprised if he's also at that time or later named a doctor of the church because of his crucial insights into this problem. Over a hundred years ago, he was sounding the warning, and he appeared to be such a grumpy man in doing it, but he kept doing it. He's important for our times precisely because he saw the problem so clearly and he sounded the warning so strongly. And so in his apologia, his, his autobiography, he summarized his life as follows. My battle was with liberalism. He's not thinking political liberalism, of course. He says, by liberalism, I mean the anti-dogmatic principle and its developments. What is the anti-dogmatic principle? Well, basically, dogma doesn't really matter. What matters is just we kind of we all get along. We all just kind of be nice people. But dogma is sort of separate from that. And dogma is what divides us. And if we're just all nice to each other, then everything should be fine. When he was named a cardinal, in a speech, the speech he gave when he received the red hat, as they say, a speech commonly known as the, the uh, Vilietto speech, he said, I rejoice to say, to one great mischief I have from the first opposed myself. For 30, 40, 50 years, I have resisted to the best powers of this, to the best of my powers, the spirit of liberalism in religion. Never did Holy Church need champions against it more sorely than now, when alas, it is an error overspreading as a snare the whole earth. And on this great occasion, when it is natural for one who is in my place to look out upon the world and upon Holy Church as in it, and upon her future. It will not, I hope, be considered out of place if I renew the protest against it, which I've made so often. Liberalism in religion is the doctrine that there is no positive truth in religion, but that one creed is as good as another. And this is the teaching which is gaining substance and force daily. It is inconsistent with any recognition of any religion as true. It teaches that all are to be tolerated for all are matters of opinion. What Newman warned against generally, Pius XII warned against specifically in the church. In Humani Generis, he writes, In theology, some want to reduce to a minimum the meaning of dogmas. They assert that when Catholic doctrine has been reduced to this condition, a way will be found to satisfy modern needs. Such tentatives are not, not only lead to what they call dogmatic relativism, but they actually contain it. Of course, what Newman and Pius XII warned against is now commonplace. Let's avoid arguments over doctrine and dogma and just focus on living rightly. Of course, how do you know how to live rightly if you don't know what is true? But people think that such a position, this uh, religious liberalism, uh, is more charitable and more conducive to unity. But, as we will see, the opposite is true. Remove doctrine, remove dogmatic truth, and you will soon be without a basis for morality, without a basis for living in common. Finally, there's cultural relativism. Simply put, 
no culture is better than another. And this one seems innocent enough. After all, de gustibus non disputando. We shouldn't argue about taste, right? And who's to say which culture is better? Different strokes for different folks, we might say, and so on. But cultural relativism, multiculturalism, or diversity, rests on a very bad principle. Namely, that there is no truth, and therefore no culture can embody or live the truth better than another. So no one can say that one culture is more civilized or humane than another. All is relative. The Israelites sacrificed animals. The tribes around them sacrificed children. Different strokes for different folks. You know, we shouldn't argue about taste. Uh, when our military goes into combat, it has rules of engagement. A principle of military action that has developed in only the Western world. When the Taliban goes into action, it has no such rules of engagement as our military is finding out. This cultural relativism has produced an enormous crisis of confidence in Western civilization and its patrimony. We're now afraid to hand down what we have received from Western civilization. We're afraid to call the great works of art extraordinary patrimony, afraid to call it better than what we have discovered in what used to be called more primitive civilizations. And all of this brings us inevitably to moral relativism, the dogma, and it is a dogma, that there is no true human way to act or to live. If there is no truth about who we are or what we are, then there can be nothing true about how we ought to live. But relativism goes further. It is the dogma that we must permit people to live as they choose, no matter how they live. And for us to dispute that is intolerance. And it goes even further, that we will be forced to permit them to live in a certain way. And it goes even further, that we will be forced to cooperate and to support, by taxes and other things, the way people live, no matter how much we might dispute it. Thus we come to the Cardinal Ratzinger's famous words, we are building a dictatorship of relativism that does not recognize anything as definitive and whose ultimate goal consists solely of one's own ego and desires. Such are the roots and developments of moral relativism. Having kind of sketched that background, I'd like to say a couple words about relativism's intrinsic contradictions. I'll mention two. I imagine more could be added, but only have so long. First, a relative truth is no truth at all. The truth about a square must contain the fact that a square can only have four sides. That can't be a relative truth. It cannot be, you can't have a five-sided square. You can't have a three-sided square. It, it's impossible. And we can't say, well, it's all relative. A square wants to be five-sided, that's fine. <laughs> and it would be absurd to call someone a bigot and close-minded if he insists that all squares have four sides. And it would be absurd to claim that true freedom consists in squares of any number of sides, or no sides at all. 
That is true freedom. And true freedom fighters are those who, sit, who seek to set squares free from the slavery of having four sides. <laughs> this sounds silly, of course, but it's happening. Some scholars, so-called, apply this to scripture. In the political world, they apply it to the Constitution. It's a living document. It changes with time. And notice that it never changes the way you don't want it to. The Constitution is always growing with us. It's, it's actually always growing exactly as we think it ought to. Funny how that happens. Or we have the term evolving standards. How can a standard evolve? This is, this is impossible. Truth that is relative is no truth at all. So the evolving standard line, try that next time you get pulled over for speeding. Okay. Okay, my speedometer officer has evolving standards. So the first contradiction is that a relative truth is no truth at all. The second is relativism itself is dogmatic. In fact, few people are more dogmatic than relativists, who insist, of course, that everything is relative, that there is no objective truth except theirs. Now, this is somewhat funny, viewed from a distance, but I think we will see, I hope to make clear, and I think we are going to see in the life of our nation, that this becomes very dangerous. Which brings me to a discussion of the various dangers of relativism. I'll only list three, uh, but I imagine many more could be added. The first, the seeming reasonableness of relativism. Every heresy is the distortion of a good, and relativism is no exception. In every heresy, it is the lingering aspect of truth that attracts people and gets them to latch on to what is mostly bad. John Paul II observed, a legitimate plurality of positions has yielded to an undifferentiated pluralism based upon the assumption that all positions are equally valid, which is one of today's most widespread symptoms of the lack of confidence in the truth. There's a legitimate pluralism or relativism about things. Cultures developed differently. Even in Christendom, we professed one faith. You had different cultures living that one faith. In different ways, there's legitimate pluralism. The truth was all the same, but it was sort of lived in, in different manners without compromising the truth. But that's a very different thing from saying that the truth itself is relative. It is people's instinctive recognition of legitimate plurality and their desire to get along that makes relativism so seem so reasonable and therefore so attractive. It's sort of a live and let live attitude. Gosh, if I can find a way to live and let live, I will. And relativism provides the cover. That seeming reasonableness masks the great evil. In fact, it's not reasonableness at all, of course, but skepticism about reason. Our president has perfected the art of appearing reasonable while advancing evil. In his acceptance speech in Denver, he said, we may not agree on abortion, but surely we can agree 
on reducing the number of unwanted pregnancies in this country. Notice the sleight of hand. It sounds entirely reasonable. Surely we can agree, we reasonable people can agree on reducing the number of unwanted pregnancies in this country. Makes his opponents sound like they're in favor of more unwanted pregnancies. And so the general public and pro-lifers probably as well are made to think, well, that doesn't sound so bad, you know, maybe we are working for it to the same end, maybe I'm being too harsh. He sounds reasonable and conciliatory until you give thought to the fact that abortion is one way of reducing unwanted pregnancies. And so he entices uh, people with this seeming reasonableness will never, well, and getting them to abandon the more important principle. Later in the same speech he said, I know there are differences on same-sex marriage, but surely we can agree that our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters deserve to visit the person they love in the hospital and to live lives free of discrimination. This is great rhetoric, because it, again, it assumes the mantle of reasonableness and fairness. Uh, he paints his opponents as, uh, as banning people from visiting hospitals, as, as, though, as those, those who, who do not want homosexuality, homosexual marriage, are, are trying to to ban people from hospitals. It's a brilliant tactic of getting people to agree while they forsake or ignore the deeper and more important principle. It's the tactic of let's compromise and do it my way. <laughs> Second, the dictatorship of relativism. Relativism necessarily rests on raw power because it doesn't engage the intellect. It is based on a crisis of confidence in the intellect. Nature abhors a vacuum. And if the intellect isn't going to make decisions, if the intellect isn't going to be the basis for living, the will steps in and takes over. By definition, relativism cannot and will not appeal to the truth, to the truth about man, about marriage, about sexuality, or whatever. Given that relativism cannot sway people by an appeal to truth, the only way to bring order to society, the only way to get people to do what you want them to do, is the force of law, or failing that, brute force. By denying the capacity of the intellect, relativism leaves man with only his will. So it is by force of will that he will decide things, not by reason. Third, Relativism's fifth column within us. Pontius Pilate was not the first relativist. We have to go back further to find the first. We have to go back to the first transgression of the first moral law. Back to the first refusal to observe limits. Back to the rebellion against the command, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, and the day that you eat of it, you shall die. I think we can understand the first sin as one of relativism. First, because it was a refusal to acknowledge a truth outside of oneself, and so a refusal to acknowledge oneself as limited. And more to the point, it is, can also be seen as a sin of relativism, because what were they grasping at when they grasped the fruit of that tree? The knowledge of good and evil was not just knowing about good and evil, but it was to know good and evil as a God, meaning to determine 
what is good and what is evil. That is relativism. I will determine what is good and evil. I reject any authority outside of me telling me what is good and evil. I will decide my own morality. That is what they're grasping for in grasping for the fruit of the tree of good and evil. By eating of the tree, Adam and Eve assumed to themselves the authority to define good and evil. So, relativism is a heresy dangerously tailored to our concupiscence. It has a fifth column within our souls. Our fallen human nature retains this primary wound, this inclination to relativism, if you will, to deny truth outside of us, to define good and evil on our own terms. And for that reason, relativism isn't really a system of thought because it despairs of thought. It's not really a philosophical system to which people adhere. Rather, relativism is made possible by fallen human nature justifying itself with the tools of reason. And so relativism is not something that we just fight against outside of us, but within ourselves as well. We go to confession so that we, we don't become relativists. Next, I'd like to point out some manifestations of relativism. We are all aware of them in the broader culture. Uh, I'd like to point out some that I think are perhaps less obvious and can be seemingly good. First, and one I've touched on already, diversity or multiculturalism. Again, this is another seemingly reasonable thing to appreciate other cultures and their contributions. But multiculturalism and diversity really mean something different. They mean, in effect, the failure to take the differences in cultures seriously. That some cultures have grasped the truth and lived it more fully than others. This is no commentary on the people. It's not a condemnation of individuals, but it's an acknowledgement that some cultures have risen to a, a fuller living out of the truth than others. Our Holy Father touches on this in his latest encyclical. He warns against cultural leveling and indiscriminate acceptance of types of conduct and lifestyles. As I mentioned, our soldiers and Marines are learning about this pretty well. Uh, the, the enormous differences that exist between uh, Western Christian culture and Islamic culture. Second, progressivism. And this is one that we Americans are very, very susceptible to. Progressivism, everything new is good. Everything bad, everything old is bad. And sort of this Manichaean view of reality. Good, new is good, old is bad. If there is no truth, then those who came before us have no advantage over us. There's no such thing as the wisdom of the years. Tradition has nothing to give us if there is no truth. <coughs> Why should we listen to the traditions? Why should we listen to our elders? If there is no truth, if everything is relative, then, it's, then they have nothing to say to us. This is a rejection of tradition. And unfortunately, it has infected uh, members of the church herself. 
Pope Benedict, as many of you know, has spoken of the hermeneutic of continuity. Because we have fallen into this mistake in the past 40 years of the church of seeing, like the church began in 1965, and everything since then is good. Everything before then is bad. Uh, with his restoration of the traditional mass, Pope Benedict made very clear that no, we need to restore our, the continuity of the church and this, the continuity of tradition. We need to reconnect ourselves with the past, with the tradition of what came before, because our faith is not one that we discover on our own, but one that has been handed down. What we have been laboring under for years is the hermeneutic of discontinuity. The view that what we do now is better than what came before. <clears throat> Another silly phrase that comes about because of this mindset. Uh, I heard someone once refer to starting a new tradition. Enough <laughs> 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 <Okay. laughs> oh, said. Third, third manifestation of relativism. And this, in my mind, is the greatest threat currently. Technology. Um, not that all technology is bad, but technology introduced into a relativistic culture is extraordinarily dangerous. We presume that technology is neutral and impartial. And indeed it is. Provided that we have a good understanding of the human nature and the moral code that that technology is supposed to serve. But, if we do not acknowledge any truth about our human nature, and if we refuse to acknowledge any distinctly human way of acting, then we have no standard by which we judge the use of technology. Without that objective truth, we have no capacity to say that a certain technological advancement is not good, or certain technology should not be used. If we don't have this understanding of human nature and of objective morality, any use of technology is permitted. John Paul II, again in Pérez Ratio, wrote, Sundered from truth, individuals at the mercy of caprice and their state as persons ends up being judged by pragmatic criteria based essentially on experimental data in the mistaken belief that technology must dominate all. Russell Hittinger calls this the technological order, and we introduce ourselves into it rather than subordinate it to the moral order of the human person. C.S. Lewis warned against this over 60 years, over 60 years ago. He called it the abolition of man the book by that title. The abolition of man because technology gobbles up man. Technology consumes man because there's no objective truth to stand athwart of that technology. So without something that defines man and how he acts, every new technology, the pill, in vitro, cloning, the internet, these end up defining us and determining us instead of us determining them. How I use technology and whether, I, whether or not I use technology can only be answered if I have a notion, a firm conviction rather, 
of objective moral truth and how the human person lives. Without that objective truth, we are no longer the masters of technology. We are subjects. And consider again our fallen human nature, our inclination to sin. We are inclined to selfishness, to that lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. And without metaphysical and moral truth to, to draw us out of that and to something higher, technology preys on our sinful instincts and gives them freer reign. It's not that we are more sinful than they were 100 years ago. We just have lost the idea of what it means to be human, and we have more technology to accelerate our sinfulness. So a relativistic view of man hands over te to technology the power to determine action. Suddenly, whatever is technologically possible becomes the direction we will go, or rather, not the direction that we will go, but the direction we will be taken. So in conclusion, I want to offer some words of hope. Quite honestly, I, I ought to offer some words of hope. <laughs> I only have two. But they are enough to overcome all the bad news we have heard. And the two words are truth and joy. An interviewer once asked John Paul II, what was the most important word in the Gospels? The Pope immediately replied, truth. Because our Lord came not just to bring us truth, but as truth himself. And so we take hope in the truth, not just that the truth is, but that we have been created for truth, and that our Lord has come into the world as incarnate truth. Truth and the human heart are not strangers. They are created for one another, or rather, the human heart is created for truth. If there has been any consistent theme in the last century of philosophical and the theological writing, in the likes of Newman, Chesterton, John Paul II, and Benedict, it is this, that truth brings true freedom. And the insistence on the truth is no threat to man, is no threat to his freedom but it is the guarantee of his, of, of his freedom and of his dignity. This should give us great confidence in speaking to the culture. Every human heart is created for the truth, not just Catholic hearts. Every heart is created for the truth. Catholic Church has the truth. We just got to get these to me. They'll get along great. And at the end of the day, no one really believes in relativism, except Nietzsche, and he, and he died in an insane asylum. <laughs> Relativism is a convenient gimmick that people use to do what they want, or more likely to justify what they've already done. <coughs> but if you press people on it, if you bring it to its logical conclusion, then they will back off. As regards the realm of sexuality, if you press it and say, well, really, there are no sexual norms whatsoever, people aren't willing to go there. Everybody will admit of some line somewhere. They just get angry with us because we draw it earlier. <laughs> the same with marriage. Everyone will admit some norms of marriage. So maybe Peter Singer up at Princeton. Everyone will. They, they might reject polygamy. might draw the line there. The line there or, or incest. They might draw the line there. But everybody draws the line. They're just <clears throat> mad at us because we draw it earlier. And likewise with abortion. Only the extreme.
extreme radicals will say that a child can be aborted at any time whatsoever. Partial birth abortion horrifies people. Most people are not willing to justify that. No one really believes this. Few have the stomach for the logical conclusion of relativism. And it's entirely because their hearts are made for the truth. And the truth is not just kind of a concept. It is not something indifferent or impartial. It is the one for whom we have been made. And the truth has already tried on the third day. Which leads to the second word, joy. Truth brings joy, or it ought to anyway. And if you're moping around because you've got the truth, shame on you. <laughs> Who's going to believe the truth if you're moping around? One of the greatest critics of relativism is also one of the funniest, of course, G.K. Chesterton. And he's a man who's, well, he's larger than life, literally, and, <laughs> um, and, and in his intellect as well. But there was this great joy about him, even as he saw all the problems a hundred years before they came about, and more clearly than most people see them today. The world of relativism is a world without joy because it admits no one any entrance into the heart because it's ultimately selfish. It is gauging everything according to my own narrow view of things. No joy can enter into that heart. Joy always comes from some delight on the outside, something beautiful or true that is unbidden, unexpected, that surprises us, causes us to rejoice. Like a child born in Bethlehem, a man risen from the dead on the third day, a truth that comes into our lives unbidden, unexpected, and brings joy. The relativist never experiences that. Can't. Because he defines all reality according to his small mind and even smaller heart. The one in love with him who is truth finds true joy. The joy of finding something more than oneself the joy of finding more than our minds can construct or imagine for themselves, the joy of finding more than our hearts can hold. And those two words give us enough encouragement to continue fighting relativism. Truth and joy, and joy because of the truth. Thank you. Two things. First, natural law. This is something that uh, Pope Benedict has been emphasizing throughout his pontificate, is the need to recover natural law as a basis for dialogue. Because natural law is, we can argue uh, for objective morality without appealing to our dogma or doctrine. We can appeal just on the basis of natural law. The Catholic Church uh, has been a, really a guardian of natural law since her inception. Um, and, uh, you know, many of the teachings that we have regarding um, sexuality or abortion or, you know, economics or many other things, these are not the exclusive domain of Catholics. These are accessible to all peoples by way of the natural law. And so making an appeal to people on that basis is very important. So, you know, the Institute will have down the road some talk on natural law. Um, 
The second thing I wanted to point out, relativism is a good way of understanding Pope Benedict's entire mission. Um, or, you know, perhaps not what he intended, but where he's found himself. There's the relativism, the relativism of the West, which sees nothing true about man, nothing true in general. There's a relativism of Islam, which is a, a relativism about God himself. And this is what the Pope was touching on in his talk at, in Regensburg, which was so controversial, that um, the dominant strain of theology in Islam says that God can be unreasonable. He can contradict himself. He is not confined by reason. Uh, to which we say, well, God is beyond reason, but he's not unreasonable. If he seems unreasonable, it's not his fault, it's ours. We don't understand. Uh, and because of uh, that relativism in, in God, it becomes very much just a religion based on authority, because there's no appeal to reason. Uh, there's no appeal to morality on the basis of reason or natural law. It's just command. Uh, so there's relativism, relativism of the West, the relativism of Islam. And let me just point out another one. He's battling liturgical relativism. And uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, now Pope Benedict, has been battling this for years. The thought that there's nothing really true about the Mass, about the liturgy. I can do with it whatever I want. That, unfortunately, every one of us has experienced uh, to some degree or another. Hopefully none of us are guilty of it. But uh, we've experienced, you know, seeing uh, priests unfortunately play fast and loose with the Mass. Uh, it's sort of a relativistic attitude towards the liturgy. And that's something else that Pope Benedict is, uh, you know, well before he was, he was Pope, has been uh, trying to fight against. So I just wanted to make those comments, and uh, now uh, we'll hand over the mic reluctantly to Bert. Uh, <laughs> our, our usual uh, rules apply, that is, uh, we have maximum five minutes or so, ten minutes of questions, probably more like five, Father. And, um, and uh, keep your questions to one sentence. If you have to take a breath in the middle, you, you broke my rule. And make sure at the end of your sentence, there's a question mark. Okay, so. Is ecumenism, which has been so enshrined in the Catholic Church, is this not an offspring of indifferentism? So this is, a, good, this is a, a fair question, because many people uh, either see ecumenism that way, uh, I'm sorry, see, either see ecumenism that way, or um, uh, they fall into it themselves. Ecumenism, the, the search uh, to reestablish unity among all uh, Christian communities and churches, uh, must always be based uh, on the truth. And so the false kind of ecumenism is the ecumenism that seeks to do away with dogma, which sees dogma as the problem as the cause of our differences. Uh, years ago, I was, um, I was involved in a, um, a, a, a joint presentation with a Lutheran minister, and um, he began, he spoke first, he began by saying that he was not Missouri Synod Lutheran. He said, uh, they, a Missouri Synod Lutheran wouldn't come to this sort of thing because they think they're right. <laughs> and I immediately thought to myself, well, I don't want to talk to a guy who doesn't think he's right. <laughs> I, I want my Lutherans to be Lutheran. I don't want them to, to, to be bad Lutherans. And, um, and so, and during the course of the discussion, um, 
it became abundantly clear that he did not think that the content of faith had any bearing on the act of faith. So that to say, I believe, it didn't matter what followed. You could say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. You could say, I believe in Allah. Didn't matter. It, so he saw dogma sort of uh, as the problem. And his brand of ecumenism was to reduce dogma, to play it down. That is uh, not a good form of ecumenism. I'm, you know, members of the church uh, have, have fallen into that as well, unfortunately. But uh, the legitimate kind of ecumenism that uh, you know, Pope Benedict spoke of, you know, immediately after he was elected, is to define the dogmas clearly and to seek a common, to seek unity, first of all, in faith, then in sacraments, then in, uh, in common authority. Um, and so that's, if that's what ecumenism is seeking, then, then it doesn't compromise, it doesn't fall into relativism, but it's that kind of ecumenism that sees dogma as a problem uh, that is relativistic and, and really is no part of the church. Um, faith always, the act of faith depends on the content of faith. Okay, just as uh, ladies, if your husband or your boyfriend takes you out for a nice romantic dinner, and a nice candlelight dinner in an Italian restaurant, of course. <laughs> nice, nice red wine, and, and at the end of the dinner, he reaches across, takes your hand in his, and he looks in your eyes and he says, I love. <laughs> there, there, there's, there, there's something missing. <laughs> it's not enough to say I love. There needs to be like a completion of that sentence. And, and, and what it says is, you know, it's important. He says, I love tiramisu. Oh. <laughs> and so also with the act of faith. It's not enough to say, I believe. What do we believe? And that's why dogma is so important. It determines our act of faith. So, fair question. Thank you very much. Um, uh, Father, yeah, you spoke about the dangers of false uh, to tolerance. Uh, for those of us who agree with your, all your intellectual points and are non-relativists, uh, how can we challenge ourselves? What are some constructive ways we can challenge ourselves to have greater charity? Can you repeat that question? <laughs> uh, this, this is an excellent question as well because um, uh, there was an article written in uh, This Rock a couple years ago. I, I wrote it.
Um, the truth without charity really is hostility. Um, and so our Lord is incarnate truth. Um, truth took on a um, particular manifestation of the world and showed himself. And so we have to follow that principle of the incarnation and in speaking the truth, uh, to speak it as best we can, always, in, in complete charity. Um, somebody brought this up, um, this counts kind of like as a question number two and a half. Somebody brought this up uh, during the break, uh, and that is, you know, yeah, how, do we, how do we talk to people who, who really are completely opposed? And we have to pray for charity. And, and this comes from confidence in the truth. If we are confident uh, in, in the, that the church is who she says she is, her teachings are true, then we can be peaceful and placid in our conversations with people. And, uh, and always distinguish the person from, um, from the error. The person is always to be loved, but, every, but errors are to be, to be rejected, to be combated, to be corrected. Um, so I think that all those things are, are helpful in, in trying to you know, get us to, to speak the truth and love, as St. Paul says. Um, so, yeah, fair question. Oh, yeah, my response to the person who asked um, um, uh, during the break. Um, pity and piety. Uh, the word pietà, an Italian famous statue, uh, doesn't translate directly into English. It's kind of split between these two words. Piety and pity. And uh, pity, um, we should have pity for people who don't have the truth. Not in a condescending way, because it's not like we invented the truth, but, but really genuinely out of a care for souls and a love, love for souls, say, gosh, no, I really wish this person had the truth. I would really like to share it with them. Um, that, that kind of pity we should pray for. And uh, likewise, uh, piety, which enables us to love others and to seek their good. Um, those two things are essential in, uh, in, in speaking the truth. If we don't um, act and speak in a way that is worthy of the truth, then we do the truth a disservice. Final question? Listening to your words on multiculturalism and seeing that we do have an office in the diocese dedicated to multiculturalism, <laughs> and in light of the document on uh, unity in diversity by the U.S. bishops, uh, what are positive aspects and ways to go about uh, multiculturalism? Yeah, as I, as I said in the talk, the um, you know multiculturalism or, or uh, you know diversity, um, there there can be a legitimate you know uh, manner that, in which those are good. Politically, often those are bandied about, and and there is a deeper meaning there. Many people take them uh, very innocently, um, you know, to promote an appreciation of different cultures and what they contribute and things like that. And that's precisely how the diocese means it in, in, in the bishops' conference. Um, uh, an acknowledgement of all the, the different cultures in the church, um, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful truth. I mean, it's what it means to be Catholic, all of these different cultures, one truth. And, and each culture shows how, how the truth, um, I mean, the church is like a garden with, with, with a great variety of, of plants and flowers, 
but you know it's the same uh, water of the Holy Spirit that that waters them all. Uh, the same truth. So uh, I, I don't I don't mean to condemn all uses of that that came across that way. I, I uh, retract that. But um, in the political sphere, it very often can take that um, uh, can take that tone. Um, honestly, when I was in college, this is um, is exactly how it was used. Uh, it wasn't just let's appreciate other cultures. It was let's equate all cultures. It was the cultural leveling that the Pope talks about. Now, Diocese talks about this in, the, in Bishop's Conference. Uh, in conference, what they mean is, is an awareness of all the varied cultures uh, in the church in the United States. And by the way, that's probably more true in the United States than in most any other country, because we're a nation of immigrants. And so you know, most other countries don't, don't have you know, the diversity within uh, the, the, the church and the nation that, that we do. Last question. No, statement. It's mine. Um, uh, I mentioned Cardinal Newman, and I mentioned his Bilietto speech. Um, I'm going to leave copies of it over the table. If you came with a spouse or significant other, you only get one. Okay. Um, but uh, I encourage you to get to know Cardinal Newman. Um, I spent some friends in the week, uh, spent some weeks studying uh, some of his work. And this is one of his signature speeches, and it's an excellent, excellent work. It gives you a great introduction uh, to his writings. I thank you for your attention. Uh, if you'll stand now, I'll give you a present. The Lord be with you. In the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, the most chaste spouse, may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen.